Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, what we're doing at the moment on Sunday mornings is we're working our way through the book of Colossians, which is found in the New Testament. And if you have a Bible with you or if you've got it on your phone, can I encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read together from verse 24 of Colossians 1 through to verse 5 of chapter 2. And the words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but if you do have one, keep it open, and because we're going to look at this passage a little bit more closely in just a moment. This is God's Word. Paul's neighbor for the church. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Please do keep that open as we come to to look at it a bit more closely now. Um, Am I cutting out at the minute? Is the the mic cutting out? Is it? Well, well, um, let me just see if uh, a little change of batteries might help. Give me one second. Is this, is this better? Let's see. Hopefully that doesn't cut out now that the batteries are changed, but we'll see how it goes. Um, but let's pray as we come together to look at this part of the Bible. And do you have the Bible open so that you can see that what I'm saying is not just my ideas or my thoughts, but that what I'm saying is what the God is saying in, in the text here. So let's pray together and ask God to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that you are a speaking God. And we thank you that through the letters of Paul, you spoke to the very first churches and that through these letters today, you speak to us. And Lord, we would ask this morning that as we now come to look at Paul's words written to the Colossians, that, that we would hear you speaking to us this morning as the congregation of Ravenhill Presbyterian Church. Father, give us a word in season this morning and say to us the things that you want to say. Give us ears that are open and hearts that are willing to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if any of you have ever been to India. Um, I was there a number of years ago, and it's an absolutely wonderful country, but, but the thing that is central in India is the Hindu religion. And the Hindu religion, it just encompasses the whole of life. There are so many different temples and so many different shrines. 
so many different festivals, so many different rituals, so many different initiations, so many different mysteries. The Hindu religion, it, it encompasses, it, it just it just taught all of life in India. It sweeps all of it. Every little part of life is touched by religion. And what I noticed is that religion in India, it's very, very complicated. And it's very, very mysterious. There are priests in the Hindu religion. And they do these mysterious rituals that please the gods. But the most revered of all people in India are the gurus. The gurus are the most revered people of all. You see, the gurus, do you know what they have? They have the secrets of the gods. They know the secret things that the gods only know. And they, these gurus, they, they know them. And they occasionally share the secrets of the gods with the people in India. They have huge followings. If you go on any of these gurus' Twitter pages or, or their Facebook pages, they have millions and millions and millions of followers. And do you know what their devotees do? They, they serve these gurus. They, they almost worship them. They give them their money. They bow down to them. They, they give up their lives to go and serve these gurus. These gurus, these men sit as the people who have the, the secrets of the gods. And they're served and worshipped and given finances. They're little gods in their own world. Now, what you might not think about is that back at the time that the book of Colossians was written, the religious atmosphere in Colossae was a little bit like in India. You see, in the Roman Empire, people worshipped all sorts of gods. All the different Greek gods were still worshipped in the Roman Empire. So, you had shrines, and you had temples, and you had rites, and you had rituals, and you had initiation ceremonies, and you had priests who did these mysterious things in the worship services that no one really understood, but boy, they looked impressive. You would have went to a, a huge temple to worship these gods. There would have been incense burning. It was a very spiritual experience, a very complicated experience. And then you had the sages, you had the, the gurus of the day who held the secret messages of these gods that they might occasionally share with people. Now, I want you for a, a second, just for a second, I, I need you to put your, yourself in, in the life of one of these people who became a Christian Colossi. I want you to imagine for a second that you were brought up going to all these different temples. I want you to imagine that you were brought up going to worship, and whenever you went in, there was incense burning, and there were priests doing mysterious things, and there were these initiations, and there were sacrifices. I want you to imagine that when you went to worship, it was this big complicated thing that was so mysterious. Okay, so I want you to imagine that background. And then I want you to imagine becoming a Christian. And then I want you to imagine turning up for church the first morning. If that was your background, and you turned up to church with the Colossians, you know what it would be? It would be completely underwhelming. The Colossians, you know where they met? They didn't meet in this fabulous temple with the statues and the images and the paintings. They met in somebody's house. Imagine meeting in someone's living room when you'd been used to meeting in a big kind of cathedral type building. And then whenever they got into the church service, well, there was no 
incense. There were no sacrifices being made. There were no very holy men doing very mysterious things. There were no rituals. There was nothing of their previous experience. Now, what happened whenever the Colossians came to church <laughs> is that a man got up, an ordinary man, Epaphras, maybe got up if he was in town, that was the person who started the church. He maybe got up or, or one of the elders got up. And the church leader, what would the church leader do? Well, he'd lead them in some singing. Maybe they'd sing some psalms and some hymns and some spiritual songs. The man at the front, the ordinary man, he, he'd open up the scriptures, whatever scriptures he had available, and he'd read them to, to the congregation. And then he'd explain them. He'd explain what the, the Scripture said. And then he might pray, and then he might bless the people, and then they might all go home. A completely underwhelming event compared to the worship of the Greek gods in the temples. And you can imagine what the people in the congregation were thinking. Have they got this right? I mean, seriously, is this it? Has Epaphras got it right? Is he, is he leading us properly on a Sunday morning? Have the elders got it right? Are they doing the right things when we get together? You know, shouldn't it be a bit more mysterious? You know, shouldn't they maybe be thinking about building a temple? Shouldn't they maybe be, be offering some sacrifices? Shouldn't it be a little bit more than this? The Colossians are, are wondering, is this it? Are their church leaders doing the right thing when they gather together on Sundays? And so Paul, he, he writes his letter to the Colossians partly to address this, and, and it's in this part of the passage that he addresses it. And what Paul does in this part of the, the book of Colossians is he, he highlights four characteristics of church leaders that make them different from the priests and the pagan and the cult leaders. Four things that mark church leaders out as being different. And the first thing Paul highlights is the attitude of a church leader. He says that a church leader is not a guru who's going to be served. A church leader is not someone who's trying to get a following for himself. A, a church leader is not someone who, who wants the congregation to serve him. But a church leader is one who sees himself as a servant. Have a look with me at verses 24 and 25, and look how Paul describes himself as a prototype for the other ministers. He says this, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking with regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. Do you see what Paul says about himself there in verse 25? He says, I have become the church's servant. Whenever I became a Christian, Paul says, when God called me to, to do something for him, do you know what he called me to do? He called me to be a servant, to be a servant of the church. And Paul's making the point to the congregation there, listen, the church leaders in front of you, they're not called to be like the gurus and the sages. They're not meant to have a following. They're not meant to be worshipped. They're, they're not meant to be these people who, who, are, who are kind of set up on a pedestal. No, Paul says, we as, as church leaders, we are servants. 
We're called to serve the people of God. They're to be people who follow the pattern of Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said about himself? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Oh, Colossians, your church leaders are different from the gurus. Your church leaders are to be those who serve. That's their attitude. They want to serve you. They're they're there to serve you, not to be revered and worshipped like the gurus. This morning, as we sit here in this place, many of us here this morning were involved in, in leadership or in ministry here in Ravenhill. I'm actually really impressed. We have a, a really high percentage of people involved in, in, in leading or, or, or ministering in the church. People involved in music ministry, people involved in welcoming, people involved in shine, people involved in GB and BB, people involved in caring whenever that happens again. We have a, a high proportion of people involved in leading and in ministering in this church, and it is wonderful. And Paul says here, let, let's remember though that, that our attitude is to be that of a servant. We're not to serve in the church to to hold a position. We're not to lead in the church that we can say, I am the leader of this organization. No, as as church leaders, we're to be servants. Those who serve other people through our actions and through our words. The call to leadership, the call to ministry is a call to service. Um, Over the past six months, I've got to know a man in the local community quite well. And uh, he, he, he just, he always calls me Reverend Gray. <laughs> Reverend Gray, I mean, we're talking on the phone, and he must say Reverend Gray 10 times. And um, we're communicating on Facebook, Reverend Gray. Uh, and every time I speak to him on the phone, I say, listen, could, could you do me a favor? Could you please, please just call me Marty? And he says, no. <laughs> please. He says, no, he says, I'm old school. Uh, I couldn't possibly call a man of the cloth anything other than reverend. And he finds it really weird. You know, he finds it weird that, that I struggle to be called reverend, but there is a reason for it. And the reason is because this word reverend, you know when it started to come into fashion? It started to come into fashion in the 15th century. And the reason the word reverend was used was because people started to think of the clergy as being above everyone else. They started to set the clergy, the the ministers of the church, they started to set them up on a pedestal. And so as a term of respect, they would call them reverend. Reverend. The reason I don't want to be called reverend, it's not just because I'm modern. (laughs) One of these modern ministers. It's not because of that. It's because as ministers of the gospel, we're not to be put on a pedestal because we are simply servants. It's funny, I don't like being called reverend, but I'm very, very happy to introduce myself as the minister of Ravenhill Presbyterian Church. And do you know why that is? It's because you see that word minister, do you know what that means? That's servant. A minister is one who who serves other people. The prime minister is the number one servant for the government. And a minister of the church is a servant of the church. This morning, I want to encourage you, if you're in leadership, if you're in ministry in this congregation, 
to, to test your heart. What is your attitude towards your service? Are you doing it to be on a pedestal? Are you doing it to get something out of it for yourself? Or are you doing it with the attitude of a servant? I just want to encourage you that you see if you have the attitude of a servant, it makes it so much easier. It makes it such a joy because there are always so many opportunities to serve other people. Anyway, that's the first thing about church leaders. They are, they are servants, not gurus. The, the second thing then that he points out is that, is that the aim of a church leader is also different to the aim of a guru or the aim of a priest in, in the temples. And whenever you went to a temple, do you know what the aim was? It was that you would have a spiritual experience. It's that you would have this kind of emotional high. When you went into the temple and the, the incense was burning and it created this kind of fogginess. When you went into the temple and you saw the holy men doing these very complicated holy things, the whole idea was so that you would have some sort of emotional response to worshiping the idols that were there. The aim of the the priest, the aim of the guru was to lead the people into some sort of hyper-emotional experience. So they would leave the building that day saying, oh, listen, I, I really felt something today. But Paul says, listen, listen, Colossian church, the reason there's no bells and whistles, the reason there's no fog machines, the reason there's no kind of emotional uh, language to try and evoke emotions. The reason for that is because the church leader isn't trying to do that. No, 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 no. The, the church leader has a different aim on a Sunday morning. The church leader has a different aim with, with his whole approach to what he's doing. And the main aim, Paul says, that the church leader has is to present the people of God fully mature in Christ. Have a look with me at verses 28 and 29. Paul, talking about his own ministry, says, talking about Christ, he says, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Here's what I'm working really, really, really hard to do, says Paul. I'm working hard to present God's people mature in Christ. This summer, I have the wonderful privilege of being involved in three weddings, and I'm really looking forward to it. But for me, there, there is one part of the, the wedding, well, there's a number of things that are they're very emotional, but there's one part that, that really is very emotional whenever I see it. And it's whenever I ask the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father of the bride at that point, he, he stands up and he says, I do. And in that moment, he's, he's presenting his daughter to be united to the groom. He, he's putting his beautiful daughter forward and saying, he, here she is. Here's my beautiful daughter. And I'm giving her, I'm presenting her to you, the groom. And Paul says that, that his aim is to be able present the church, to, to be able to present God's people to Christ and say, look, here they are, Lord Jesus. Here they are, fully mature. Here they are, Lord Jesus. Here is your church. And, and look at them. They are mature followers of Christ. 
here they are, Lord. Here's the people that I've invested in. Here's the people that I've given my life to. Here's the people I've served. And here they are, people who love you and follow you and trust you and are mature in their faith. And folks, this, this morning, this is the aim that, that church leaders have. This is the aim that I have with you. Yes, I want to encourage you, absolutely, and that's in the passage. Yes, I want you to be united with each other in love. Again, that's in the passage. But my main aim as the minister is to help you grow in your faith. It's to help you know Jesus better. It's to help you love Jesus deeper. It's to help you follow Jesus in your everyday life. My main aim is to help you become more mature in your faith in Christ. And I make no apologies for that. That's why we do discipleship groups and that's why they they ask for high commitment. Because we want you to grow and and deepen your faith. That's why whenever I preach, we, we take some hard stuff as well as some easier stuff. Because I want you to grow and deepen in your faith. Our desire as church leaders is is not just that you're little baby Christians who, who only have a little simple faith. Faith must be simple. But we also want you to have a deep faith and a and a strong faith and a rigid faith. We want you to be those who are fully mature in Christ. And so because of that, then the actions of a church leader are different. We'll move on to that now. The actions of a church leader are different because our aim is different. If, if I wanted you to have a really spiritual or emotional experience in church, there, there's things we could do to manipulate that. Just like the priests would have done in the Roman temples. But because this is not the aim, then as church leaders, we, we have different actions than the sacrifices or the incense or those emotional strings that we pull. Because we want you to be mature in Christ, then what we do is we do three things. And the first thing we do is we present to you the Word of God in its fullness. Have a look at verse 25. I have become its servant by the commission you gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. I'm not here, and church leaders are not here to give you our ideas. We're not here to do that. We're here to present to you the Word of God. We're here to to open this book to you, God's very written words. We're here to open this book at, at all the different pages and to read it and to proclaim it and to teach you what it says. As church leaders, because we want you to be mature in your faith, we, we teach the Word of God in its fullness. That's why we did Habakkuk. <laughs> If you're not going to teach the Word of God in its fullness, you you don't touch Habakkuk, do you? That's why we did that. You might not know this, but you know my least favorite part of the Bible to preach? It's the letters of Paul. I'm not kidding. John has had to twist my arm to, to get us to preach this over these next number of weeks. And the reason we're preaching it isn't because I like it. I actually find this really hard to preach. The reason we're preaching it is because it's part of the fullness of God's Word. That's why sermons sometimes can be very long. (laughs) That's why I can preach for a long time some weeks. It's not because I'm trying to bore you. It's because I'm less concerned with giving you what you want. And I'm more concerned to give you what you need. Which is the fullness 
of God's word. We want you to be mature so we preach to you the fullness of his word and sometimes that takes more than 15 minutes and I'm afraid you just have to deal with that. The second thing they do is they also admonish. If you look at, well, in verse 28, he says, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul also says, listen, as church leaders, we don't just teach what the Bible says, but we, we also teach the hard parts, the warnings. We admonish people. We warn them. We correct them. We rebuke them. As church leaders, what we're meant to do is that whenever we see the congregation and an individual in it living in a way that is completely contrary to the way that Christ calls them to, what we're meant to do is we're meant to warn them and to rebuke them and, and do it in a loving way, but we're meant to actually point out where people are going wrong. And I want to say that's really hard. It's really hard. It's really hard in today's world where, where we don't really like to say anything's wrong or, or we certainly don't like to point out people's faults. It's really hard for me as a minister to do because I am flawed. <laughs> I'm flawed. I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. I don't have all the right answers. I don't live for Christ perfectly well all of the time. I can feel it's hard to admonish someone. It's hard to warn them. It's hard to, to rebuke them because, well, I need rebuke and I need admonishment as much as anyone else. But Paul says, listen, unlike the, the priests and the gurus who will just tell you what you want to hear, church leaders will admonish you, they'll warn you, and they'll rebuke you, and they'll correct you, not because they don't love you, but because they do love you, and because they want you to become mature in Christ. This morning, whenever you think of warning someone, if you're like me, you, you automatically think of it as a negative. But actually, in reality, it's a positive. You see, whenever I'm driving the car, and the warning light comes on, that my petrol tank is nearly empty, that is a blessing. That's a blessing because it means I'm not gonna run out of petrol assuming I do something about it. You see when I'm driving the car and the engine light comes on and we all hate when that happens, it's a blessing because it means I'm not gonna blow up the engine by continuing to drive. We're to warn as church leaders not because we're above people, not because we're better than people, not because of any of that, but to bless them by helping them not to self-destruct their feet, but to keep going and mature in Christ. And the last thing we see that a church leader is to do is they're to proclaim Christ. They're to, to proclaim Jesus. They're, they're to be always banging on about Jesus. Again, you see that in verse 28. He is the one we proclaim. You see, to become like Jesus, we need to know about Jesus. To become more like Christ, we need to know more about Christ. To become a Christian, we need to hear about his death and his resurrection and, and the forgiveness that he offers. To keep going as a Christian, we need to hear about the power that he gives us through his spirit. We need to hear about Jesus. And if you've been around Ravenhill for long enough, you'll know that, that we're always talking about Jesus here. Jesus this, Jesus that, every sermon, Jesus will be in there. It's because we must proclaim him to grow more like him. Let me finish just by highlighting one last difference. And the last difference is the delight of the church leader. You know, there are many things that delight me here in Ravenhill. Like there, there are loads. 
I'm delighted that we're growing. I'm delighted that new people are coming. I'm delighted that we're, we're doing new things as well as the old things. I'm delighted with the sense of joy there is amongst us to be together. I'm delighted at the love there is between each other. I am delighted by, by so many things. But Paul says that the greatest delight of a leader in the church is that the people he's serving are firm in their faith and remain firm no matter what. Look at what he says at the end of this passage. He says there, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. My greatest joy is whenever I speak to some of you and you're going through immense suffering, and in the middle of that suffering, you're trusting Christ. One of my greatest joys is that whenever I, I go and see you and you're grieving and, you're, and you're, you're, you're grieving a loss, one of my greatest joys is whenever you talk about how good the Lord Jesus is, has been to you in the middle of it. For some of you younger people, especially young adults, one of my greatest joys is whenever I hear the pressure you're under from those around you to cave in and yet how you keep living for Jesus in the face of it. My greatest delight, says Paul, is that you Colossians are firm in your faith. And my greatest delight, my greatest delight as a minister is whenever you blow me away by your faith in Christ. Listen, I, I really hope that you enjoy coming to church on Sundays. I do hope you get something out of it. I hope you leave the doors later on. To, you know, I'm, I'm, I was glad to be there. I'm glad I was in church this morning. It was good to be there. It was great to see people. I really do hope that, that you experience all of those things. And I also hope that you meet God here. I do hope you have spiritual experiences. But you know, in the whole, we're going to have pretty normal Sunday mornings. Most weeks, there's going to be nothing fancy. Most weeks, there's going to be nothing emotionally high. There's not going to be that deep spiritual experience. And that's okay. Because my job is to preach God's words in its fullness, that you may become mature in your faith, that you may go deep with Jesus Christ, that you may stand in the moment of trial and trust him at all times. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so glad to get together on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're even glad whenever we don't necessarily have a, a really positive experience, we're just glad to be together. But Lord, we would just ask that as we continue to meet here Sunday by Sunday, that as we open up your word and read it and hear it preached, we pray, Lord, that you would build us up in our faith, that we would become more and more like Christ, that we would become more and more mature in our faith, Lord, I pray for each person here that in the middle of trials, in the middle of temptations, in the middle of pressures, that their faith would stay strong, that they would trust in Christ and live for him no matter what. Lord, build us up in our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.